Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This, of course, is the prayer of every procrastinating student at the end of term. <laughs> Forget cosmic battles featuring hideous creatures, Gog and Magog, trumpets, scrolls, and the writer whose name is Death. If God should choose to intervene before the paper deadline and the final exam, a swell of relief would ascend the heavens that could well rival the angelic chorus before the throne. If not then, then perhaps we would settle for the divine assistance in living up to the exhortation to the church in Sardis. Remember then what you received and heard. I do hope that there is some comfort in knowing that this is indeed the prayer of your faculty. Well, we have in the course of our academic year and in our weekly meditation on the book of Revelation reached the end of all things. There may still linger the question in the minds of some whether or not we shall ever reach the end of all things in a greater sense. The book of Revelation, of course, is all about end things. It is about the end of hunger and thirst. It is about the end of delay. It is about the end of Babylon, the end of deception. It is about the end of the first cosmos and the end of night. It is about the end of grief, crying, and pain. It is about the end of death. And in the end, it is also about the one who claimed to be both the beginning and the end. And yet, this is so much not our experience. We have learned this semester that the grave's appetite remains unsatisfied and unremitting. We grope about in what occasionally feels like a futile attempt to find our bearings, to discern the path ahead. And all the while we are drawn to the siren call of the deceivers and hawkers of earthly goods. And we continue to wait. And we wait. And we wait. In the meantime, that essay is due tomorrow. The exam comes on Monday. Where is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end? There are those who, as we know, understand the revelation of St. John the Divine to be a psychotic fantasy or an elaborate code where those with the skills of interpretation might understand either the details of the world's future political affairs or the repressed longings of the human spirit. The biblical scholar G.B. Kerr described the book as the paradise of sectarians and fanatics. Thank God for a cadre of integrated and sane faculty at Wycliffe College. I hope that our reflections on the apocalypse this semester will have convinced us that while much of the imagery remains bizarre and there are details that elude decipherment, it is a work of serious theology addressed to a Christian community needing a word from God. 
And that while we stand eons and worlds apart, there is enough that we hold in common with our Asian forebears that it is a word for us too. What is this word for us? I suggest that it is a word about time and grace. It is, first of all, a word about time. Our perception of time is conditioned by clocks, and those of us in Western cultures can be dominated by an undue attention to punctuality. I was once at an international conference presided over by a Nigerian bishop. When the English delegates voiced their concerns over an agenda that had got off schedule, the bishop chided us. You English have your watches, he said, but we Africans have the time. The book of Revelation is framed by its own understanding of time. There are seven occurrences of the word kairos in the book, and in each instance it is conceived not so much in a linear fashion as it is a season or an opportunity. When the book begins and ends with the phrase, for the time is near, John's hearers are meant to feel the weight of the whole of John's vision, which is carefully constructed by an elaborate patterning of images that consists of seven sections of seven elements to form a symbolic seven weeks of seven years, which itself conforms to the seven times seven or 49-year cycle of the Jewish Jubilee. In other words, it is a conception of time that is ordered towards a purpose, an end, a completion, a perfection. But in John's mind, it is clear that this completion goes beyond the symbolic cycle of the Jewish calendar. It is much more profound than a retirement party or happily ever after story. For the fulfillment of time in the end is to be found not ultimately in an event, but in a person. In the one who says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. My friends, this is an extraordinary and sweeping confession. For these words are also found at the beginning of the book. Only in that occasion they are uttered by the Lord God himself. In John's vision of time, then, we have the radical consummation of all things in God. He who precedes and originates all things becomes the end of all things, and all things find their meaning and purpose in him. All things, the story of creation and humanity's expulsion from the garden, become a recreation with an invitation to enter and to eat from the tree of life. The promised Messiah, both sire and son of David, is restored to the eternal throne. The prophecy of Daniel, shut until the end, is now unsealed. All things, every member of the human race, the evil and the righteous, the filthy and the clean, will have their chosen and appointed place, and all of the redeemed will share in his new creation. So John's word for us is to live in God's time. 
And this means trying to see all things in him. Just as the seer sought to read his world and his scriptures through Christ, so ought we to measure our days by his final purposes and the quality of our life in him. So what is the means of this life in him? I believe it is to be found in the book's final verse. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. John's encouragement to live in God's time is now adorned by a bidding of grace. For throughout his vision, it is clear that his claim on the promises of God are only possible through the grace of God. It is by the grace of God that he has received words that are trustworthy and true. It is by the grace of God that he received visits from heavenly messengers. It is by the grace of God that he received his commission as a prophet. It is by the grace of God that his robes are washed, his hunger sated, and his welcome assured. It is by the grace of God that he receives the invitation of the Spirit to come, and that he can cry, come, in return. And it is an invitation that comes through him to us. Come, says the Spirit and the Bride to us. Yes, come, we respond. And so we reach the end of our term with this encouragement to live in God's time by God's grace. How do we do this? Now, it is my counsel to you all that you might continue to nurture this life in God's time by making use of God's grace in two prayers, in two gifts, the gifts of prayer and sacrament. And it is with this that I conclude. Prayer, you see, is one of the chief means by which we might escape the tyranny of time and dwell for a time in the presence of the timeless one. The final chapter of Revelation is the stern command to worship God. And we are reminded of visions earlier on where the worshipful prayer of the saints filled the throne room like incense. And so it is that we, in time, join our prayer with those who are out of time, and we find ourselves with them engaged in timeless adoration and intercession. But the piercing of the temporal veil goes in two directions. One of my favorite poems by the Welsh poet R.S. Thomas is called Kneeling. As you may guess, it is a meditation on the theme of prayer. But its final verse is striking. It ends with the sentence, the meaning is in the waiting. The meaning is in the waiting. This is Thomas's insightful way of describing the interpenetration of time with eternity. For it is in prayer that we suspend time in order to make room for the timelessness, or perhaps one might even say the timefulness of God. A God who invades, who illumines, and transforms. Now, if you were like I, you were often too demanding of God. 
I hear Jesus say, I am coming soon, and lustily join the martyr's cry, how long? I'm anxious to move on, to fill the empty space with my words, but waiting is good for me. What comes to me as divine delay is often an expression of divine patience and grace, and it gives me room for reflection and repentance. My friends, waiting in prayer is one important way of living in God's time. But then secondly, there is the sacrament. There is nothing that draws us into God's time more effectively than the Eucharist. There is a sense in which the revelation of St. John is itself situated within a corporate act of worship. The book begins on the Lord's Day and ends in the Eucharistic invitation, Come, says the Spirit of the Bride, let the thirsty come. Now, this is not simply a literary trick, a play on universal human longings. Just as the words of prayer pierce the veil separating time and eternity, so the celebration of the Lord's Supper crosses and confuses temporal boundaries. For it is both an act of remembrance, a repetition of God's saving acts in the past, and an act of anticipation, a rehearsal of the heavenly banquet that awaits. The tokens of bread and wine themselves become more than their physical species of modified wheat and grape. They become signs, signs that point, participating both in the body and blood of Christ, who is himself timeless. In this way, our communion makes all time, past and future, a reality in the present. And so, my friends, St. John's final words to us are time and grace. Well, my final counsel to you is to uphold the disciplines of prayer and sacrament. And for now, it is enough. May not get you any extra points on Friday or Monday, but it is sufficient to bring us to the threshold of the kingdom. And in the meantime, we continue to pray, even so, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.